Hi, this is Brent Weeks, author of the Lightbringer series. Welcome to the Legendarium. The Jedi suck. They suck. They're <laughs> awful. The Jedi organization is decrepit and corrupt and lazy and terrible. Craig's an Empire fan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Legendarium Podcast. This is episode, I think it's 241, if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, we are discussing the second half of The Black Prism by Brent Weeks. I'd like to remind you that The Legendarium is available on your favorite podcast player, but if you're looking for older episodes, you can find them grouped by subject at thelegendariumpodcast.com. If you enjoy what we do here, please consider supporting us on Patreon, and of course, tell your friends and leave a review. I'm your host, Craig Hanks, and with me today, he is half turtle, half bear, <laughs> but neither of those is going to help with that rash. It's Ryan Bruckman. I am the... Mm, turtle bear <laughs> <laughs> and returning to the show if lord omnichrome were to try to entice her away from her current life all he'd have to do is promise to get her away from that rash it's stephanie bruckman <laughs> hello i'm back welcome back stephanie hey. you uh were last with us for other brent week stuff you did night angel yeah there was clamoring a plenty Woo-hoo. So, uh, yes, we're glad you're back. You're back. Obviously, Ryan is. Obviously, I am. But everybody else seems to be as well. I don't know. It's a mystery. <laughs> but, hey, you're here. So, um, now, good news for everybody is that I happen to know, I have it on good authority, that is that authority being Stephanie herself, that uh, she is actually ahead of me in the reading, which I'm impressed by. Uh, and so, we may get a lot more Stephanie coming up through the Lightbringer series. I hope so. Yeah, me too. Picked up these books for a reason, so. Uh, Okay, so let's see. I've already done the housekeeping. I've already done... It was very clean housekeeping. I like that. Did you like that? Yeah. Yeah, I think think I'm going to do something like that at the beginning of every episode. I'll hand that off to Todd so that the people who have heard it a jillion times can just hit plus 15 and just skate right by it. It's so. pretty much the way we work it. Yeah, plus exactly. 15, plus 30s. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can watch, you can listen to one of our shows in, what, 45 seconds flat if you just want the good stuff. So, okay. Uh, w- so we're going to go right on into the recap. Like I said, this is the latter half of The Black Prism, chapters 51 through 95. That's the end of the book. So that's what we'll be talking about today. I don't know how... In the Sam Hill, we are going to get through everything that we need to be talking about, uh, but we're going to do our absolute best. So I'm going to keep the recap pretty short. Uh, we spend much of the latter half of this book in Tyria, specifically in Garriston, as Gavin is preparing the city for an attack by King Garadul. We meet Lord Omnichrome, an advisor to Garadul, and a seemingly impossible multicolor white who doesn't appear to be insane. Well, at least he's not raving. Liv Danavis ends up joining forces with him after he sweet talks her a bit and promises not to murder all of her friends. Uh, but yeah, he kind of tells her how awful he thinks the Chromaria is. And she's like, oh yeah, it is awful. So she, Anakin Skywalker's uh, over to Lord Omnichrome. Garrison is attacked and Kip drafts an incredible amount of green Luxon going green golem in the process and becoming an unstoppable killing machine. He, king, he kills King Garadul before anyone can stop him, thus accomplishing the assumed plan of Lord Omnichrome to get Garadul out of the way. 
Gavin has succeeded in evacuating most of Garriston by sea, and all of his friends have survived, but he has lost the use of the color blue. Dazen breaks out of his blue prison finally after 15 years and begins crawling to safety only to fall into, I think it's a green, green. green. prison of the same design. Uh, and that's essentially where we leave all of our characters. So, so good. So good. Let's let's <laughs> save some that. Yeah, I just gave us a million things to talk about. We will get to these things. So fear not. Um, I don't know. Should we just just should we just get into the ending? I'm sorry that. Okay. Yeah, we can jump right there. Uh, okay. <laughs> Nothing I, else happened. All it? I need to say about this, and and this was something that got brought up by uh, our friends on the Discord server. Um, you know, I asked for their thoughts, their questions, and comments, things they wanted us to go over, and that was something that came up real quick. Was that ending with Fake Dazen, Fazen, uh, <laughs> who who finally breaks out? He's crawling across what's essentially broken glass, right? Like these really sharp rocks and and what? It, it, it's it hellstone. Is, it hellstone, but that is um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not shale. It's uh, obsidian. Obsidian, yeah. right? It's obsidian. So it's it a is. really really sharp black rock that sucks the color out of you right and so he's crawling across this he's like whatever it hurts and i'm bleeding but i'm i'm almost free and then he falls through a trap door into an identical room except that it is now green instead of blue um so somebody on and and i apologize to you know our our crew there on discord but i don't have all the names memorized but somebody was saying you know uh, the, the other prison thing is awesome somebody says what um, how great is it that he's able to, that Weeks is able to um, disrupt your expectations without, I can't remember what it was, it was some shot at Game of Thrones without shoddy writing. I, I don't, I haven't read all of Game of Thrones, so I can't mm. really comment there. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I think this is what they're referring to. And it is awesome. Like, this is, again, like we said last episode, every once in a while, you just got a 14 year old boy it and say, that was so cool. <laughs> It's great because uh, one of my favorite things about this, and I remember on my first read, is from the moment you meet the brother or you meet uh, the original Gavin, um, you know he's coming out of that prison. You're like, yeah, he's he's going to oh, yeah. break out because that has to. We have to get something between the two brothers there. <laughs> Somebody asked me on Discord if I thought that was going to happen, and I said that if he doesn't, that'll be Chekhov's biggest misfire ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, um, so. Watching him like as he's climbing out of the blue prison and everything and going through, I was like, okay, that means book two, the brother's going to be out. He's going to start working things out there. And then he drops into the green prison and I went, oh, that hurts. Oh, that hurts my heart. But that's amazing. Like, yeah, get, what, what more painful thing could you do than to offer someone just that little bit of freedom and then drop them into the identical situation, but just enough difference. Right. Like, and, and, you know, people talk about Weeks's tendency to do horrible things to these characters that we love. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this kind of falls into that category, except that the more we read the Black Prism, the more we realize that Gavin, OG Gavin, mm -hmm. now Dazen, probably not such a great guy. You know? That it, was one thing that surprised me about that whole plot line is how quickly you found out that the older brother is actually in prison right. while the younger brother is pretending to be him. I was like, that was just kind of uh, that first meeting with him. And you're yeah. like, oh, well, what am I supposed to do with this information? I don't, I don't know how to process this. It was so strange what? that it was just like 
so early in the book that you're like, mm -hmm. oh, and by the way, we've switched places. And it's so it's so masterfully done, I think, because of that placement. Um, it, you develop pity early on for uh, the guy in the prison. We'll call him Dazen, I guess. Mm -hmm. So Dazen is in prison, and you're like, oh my gosh, what a rough deal. This usurper stole his rightful place as the prism, and now he spent 15 years in prison uh, just for losing a war. And so you, you develop this pity, but as the book goes on, he gives you these little tidbits more and more and more to make you realize, no, that's exactly where that guy belongs. And, you know, if... No, this, Gavin probably should have killed him. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. And if uh, this weren't a book, you know, by, by the laws of all fiction that hold true, you know, he's coming out. But if that weren't the case, it'd be like, no, please keep him in there forever. That's where he belongs, right? Mm -hmm. But he's coming out. So at some point. <laughs> But yeah, you you kind of figure I was expecting when he breaks out and he's crawling along the obsidian. I'm like, okay, here's our book two bad guy. And, mm -hmm. You know, he's gonna be the big bad, uh, or you know, maybe book three or something like that. Uh, but then he falls in, and I'm like, oh, we're playing the long game here. <laughs> okay, I'm, I guess I'll settle in then. I think that moment more than anything, Ryan, you you asked me something about how I felt about the structure of the series. Uh, and how this is just one giant long story, apparently, and not five discrete books. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and that is that's the biggest indication I've had so far that that's what we're dealing with. Yeah, I think there's a decent arc in in each of these books that you can follow and say this is this is this book. He does write that well, but it is definitely, especially in moments like this, where you can tell this is a large piece we're going into. Well, you asked me last time. You said who is the bad guy who's our antagonist and i checked i believe we meet him 65 percent of the way through the book so i didn't know it last time but it's obviously lord omnichrome right you couldn't remember his name last like when we were first talking Did, had we met him we had met him but we couldn't remember his name oh okay so yeah we but we, we really kind of get to know him once he attacks garriston and that happens two-thirds of the way through the book um and so now we understand that lord omnichrome has been using Garadul as a puppet. and That's why you keep calling him Lord Rainbow. I couldn't remember figure out I don't why know you... which character he gets called, I swear, and it's probably <laughs> Kip. I'm pretty sure calls him Lord Rainbow somewhere in the book, and that's the name that stuck with me. Yeah. So I that's who I see. I like Lord Omnichrome. I, uh, I call, Lord him, Rainbow, I call Ra him Lord Rainbow because I can never remember what his name is. It doesn't is. quite right. strike the same amount of fear into the enemy's heart. Right, right. He's, he's... Fear the Lord Rainbow. He comes to destroy your town. <laughs> well, I'm sure... But, but, not in, but not in June. That's his month of rest. <laughs> I'm sure somewhere along the way that he really does look very scary. But I'm sorry, when I'm thinking of some guy made up that looks like a glass prism or something and all you see is rainbows coming off of him i have a hard time <laughs> feeling like <laughs> he walks into battle like ah oh, it's kind of wet here dang it there's like rainbows shooting out of him my everywhere. boots <laughs> um it's just on a sunny day all you see is rainbows coming out of him that's all i think yeah of, no like... i think on a, on a similar note i i said something flippant I, I it was either on reddit or on discord but something about how with the green golem scene and i think it's a similar point for me is as i was reading this it was supposed to be this thing about kip going into this rage and it's all scary and whatnot but it the description at least as i was processing it seemed super goofy and i was like this is unfilmable as is <laughs> you'd have to really redesign some of these characters uh, you know the green golem thing uh, again i should probably read it again before i you know totally say this uh, for sure but 
as I processed it, I was like, oh no, he, he just kind of sounds like this weird lump that can't quite put his arms down to his sides. And, you know, it's kind of like, he's like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. If he was uh, dressed as a Ninja Turtle. He's the Turtle Bear <laughs> is what he is. I, I love the description and Turtle Bear has I stuck with me since I read it. he's a Turtle Bear. And he calls himself that because like his ability is that just he can take a beating. I love that. I love the Turtle Bear sequence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so we should probably hit up some other uh, points from the intro that I was doing. So let's go back in time a little bit. We've talked about the ending. We've dipped a little bit into the battle with the Green Golem thing. We'll come back to that. Uh, but what else, uh, what other events do we want to talk about? So when we start in chapter 51, we're still at the Chrome area, uh, but we leave that pretty quickly and head out to Garriston. There's a little uh, tiff with some pirates. Gavin sinks some pirate ships for reasons having to do with later books, I have to assume. Uh, so, it, you know, it's just one of those things where it's like, we we take some time out of the book to sink pirate ships and to mention this guy, whatever his name is. Oh, yeah. Shooter McGavin. Gunner. Yeah, Gunner. thank you. He's important, yeah. Okay, thanks. He becomes important. Um, <laughs> don't tell me. Don't tell me. I don't want to know anything. Oh, by the way, this is where Gunner comes in. No, I won't do. Okay. Well, the there has been established a little bit the, the talk that um, Gavin... W- as part of his reign, kind of cleared pirates out. Like it was part of what he did oh, okay. as something. So this is par for the course for him. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, but then we get to uh, we get to Garriston and we uh, let's see what's her name. Not live, Caris. Uh, Caris. Caris mm-hmm. has been captured by King Garadul's army. So she's being held prisoner. Or she, has she been captured? She gave herself up or there's some sort of plan. I can't remember. She was, was captured. It? She was yeah. captured. Okay. So she's captured and then Kip and Liv decide to go try to infiltrate the army to get her out. Um, I assume this is Stephanie's favorite part of the book uh, since there is, as far as I remember, the only mention in the book of prominent nipples. <laughs> uh, so I... I, I think i'm correct in saying this if you haven't listened to our night angel trilogy (laughs) series that's lost on you that that's uh, that joke is lost but that is one thing that i have to admit like reading this book compared to night angel and i understand the difference in the worlds that he created and the need of some of the crude and crass language in the night angel series but it was nice still feeling like the men were men and and they could appreciate a woman. And they talked about in the woman's one, body. Yeah, in, in the Lightbringer. Um, they do talk about women. And you can tell that they're boys and they're men. and they, But it's not overbearing. I don't feel like I'm being bombarded with all of this woman sexuality every time I turn a page. And, right. and I appreciated that, that he can still do, he can still write characters that fit into their situations, I guess. Yeah, I think this one is uh, maybe a little bit different because it's not, it, it feels less lascivious the way that he writes it and more like uh, you feel sorry for the situation that she's in. Um, everybody's leering at her or at least she feels yeah. like everybody is leering at her and you can, uh, at least for me as a guy, I have to just imagine what it would be like to be in a situation like that. Uh, and believe I'm me, nobody the... stares at this. I can guarantee <laughs> you that. I'm loving the female characters that he's written in this. Um, and especially as you get to know them more. So I just finished book two. Um, I listened to it in two days. So I have a lot of book two in my head right now because I finished it like a couple of hours ago. But 
as you get to know, especially these women characters that he's written, Liv and is Taya. Is Taya, Taya in? She's in book two, but. I don't even, she doesn't show up in book one, right? No, I've never okay. heard that name in my That's life, like, I just want to make sure, but there are, in, in Karis, and there are plenty of women characters that he's written that I think are strong and interesting without being over-sexualized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so she is, she's in prison. She's kind of in a, in, it's like the scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where Marion has to wear the dress. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Belloc makes her wear, you know, and it's this kind of like sleek, sexy dress that's super thin and, and whatnot. Um, anyway, she spends basically the rest of the book in that dress, and there's some pretty funny stuff that comes out of that. And she fights in Where that dress. Yeah, she goes to battle. ripping the dress off as <laughs> exactly. she's trying to manage fighting in the battle. Um, anyway, but okay, so now uh, Kip and Liv are on their way to rescue her. They separate because they're dumb. <laughs> uh, and you know this is like the, the horror movie characters who are like I'll look in the basement I'll go to the attic good call guys I'll go to the room with sharp things yeah exactly <laughs> uh, are there any ghosts in this kitchen drawer full of knives let's find out <laughs> um, anyway so yeah they, they separate they have some adventures Kip, or Liv gets captured pretty handily Kip also gets captured but only after taking out a whole campfire full of people uh by uh, unleashing his red mm-hmm. uh draft drafting which is the first time we've seen him draft and utilize other color and utilize colors to create things his green bouncy balls um things like that but he this is the first time we watched him like take in i can't remember what, exactly what it is but when he, they're trying to put him in the fire they go to throw him in the fire and he, he like suck in the heat sucks or the whole he thing drafts in. the sub red yeah he dra- that's what it is he it's drafts sub red okay. and pulls all the heat out of it it's like okay like that's that's different he, we haven't seen him do anything mm-hmm. like that yet so it's okay this is cool uh, which also pairs back to we're now getting to learn a little bit more about what gavin hid after the threshing because he immediately went and took his testing rod right, and right, replaced right. It. so they're like oh he's a blue green bike room you know, and, and it's uh, like, and we know that uh, there's no, more there's, to the story. There's more to this. Yeah, so. there, if there's more than one prism, then there might as well be three or eight or <laughs> fifty. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So we get our first indication of that, and this is the scene. I think uh, out of the whole book, this is probably the most graphically violent scene. Mm-hmm. Um, did uh, and did this bother either of you? I mean, we've got melting skin. Half of a face is gone. It's very Harvey Two Face, right? <laughs> um, uh, there's exploding heads, and you know, it, it's it's extremely violent. This scene, but it, in contrast to, again, contrast to Night Angel, where it's uh, there's violence stacked on violence, stacked on violence, stacked on sexual violence. <laughs> you know, this uh, it, it's almost jarring in this book to have something so violent come up. I would pair it up. And say, I don't know if it's the most jarring part. I think I had a bigger issue with the skulls. Skulls, uh, remind me. The tower. Oh, the Tower of Skulls. Yes. yes. Uh, where he describes all the, the children's skulls. But gratefully, stuff. I didn't have to read how that actually was built. Like, oh, Karis <laughs> just comes up to it and sees it. And yeah, that when I got to that part, I was like, oh my gosh, this... I can't handle another gory book like this. I don't want to get into it. And I really struggled getting into this book. But really, it's, it's, it is. It's it's few and far between. And I think it does make it a little bit more jarring 
when it's so graphic yeah. and I notice it a little bit more and I pay more attention to it yeah. than when it's just every other page is something gory and graphic and then I get um Wait, desensitized. Yeah, that's and, where it, Yeah. And so I don't pay attention to it and so all of a sudden it doesn't become important. So now at these moments when it is it's it's jarring to me, all of a sudden I was like, Oh, that this is something I need to pay more attention to. I'm and of course I'm listening to this, so I don't know. So that, it's a little different. It, probably. It's, it's a little different because I can get distracted a little bit easier as I'm listening um, than when I'm reading the actual words. But it's the same way like when Gavin, not Gavin, when Kip kills King. Garadul. Yeah. And like he says he pops his head like a pimple. And I was like. That's gross. That's disgusting. <laughs> I call all my pimples Garadul now. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get you. I'm going to go green golem on you. I'm the turtle bear. <laughs> Uh, now, when I say that it's jarring, that I don't mean to imply that it is bad. Mm -mm. I think it actually helps the violence to be more uh, affecting. It's very than well it, written. Than it would otherwise yeah. be, right? Because it's not because you're not desensitized to it. So when you come upon a mountain of villagers' skulls, then you, you don't just say, "Oh yeah, they, something like that happened 30 pages ago." They use those for mileposts all, all over <laughs> exactly. the place. Yeah, yeah. So it's a little bit different that way. Um, okay, so let's let's go on. And I, I know we are, gosh, we're 20 minutes into this. And I, like I said, before we started recording, there's no way we're going to get through everything. Sorry about that. But I have a lot of, I, I have a lot of stuff to get through in the later chapters, but I kind of want to keep recapping until we get to the end, just so that we can establish what has happened in the story. And then I want to get to kind of the more analysis and, uh, discussion of the three levels and all that stuff but uh but where are we now so they failed in their rescue attempt the army gets to garrison but before they've done that before they get there gavin has spent four days um drafting more luxon than anyone has ever seen someone draft um, even for a prism this seems impossible but he has built a wall around garrison and he builds this incredible wall. He brings in all of these other drafters and enlists their help, um, including one artist guy who makes the wall terrifying. <laughs> I thought that was kind of fun. Um, and uh, so let's see. That's where we're at. The army comes up. What else? I think the one thing that I thought interesting as they continued discussing the wall is really, I think the wall in this book is probably the biggest thing that could convince people that he's not Gavin. Right, because Gavin can't do what he is doing. And that's exactly what happens. And yeah, someone finds out about it going, I know Gavin can't, he can't draft yellow like this. You can't be Gavin. And I find it interesting that he is still, he still does it. And that's the, um, there are a bunch of, the people who find out about it are a bunch of old drafters from the, from the original mm -hmm. war. Um, and it's one of them in there. And I love that they actually sacrifice themselves. Like it's it's really cool to see these old drafters come in and say, "Hey, we're going to become whites here we're, pretty soon. We're dead anyway. So let us do yeah. something good with our last time. We'll pair up, and when one of us breaks the halo, the other will kill him, and then we'll kill ourselves." Like, I it puts such a an emotional and powerful tone to the sacrifice that these people were making, and to what they saw in Gavin that even knowing what they know about him knowing that he was days and like 
this is still the right thing to do. This is, you know, what we should be doing. Um, and Brightwater Wall, I think, is so cool. So cool. As a, as a, a feat. As of... a feat. Although my biggest problem I had was the visual. Because they talk about how they would, like, hook him up to a crane, basically, and, mm-hmm. like, hang him over. And so he's shooting it down. So if you ever see the uh, uh, hoverboards on, out over the water, <laughs> those guys who, like, it sucks up water and jets and shoots it straight down, that's the visual I have of Gavin. But it's, like, yellow. He's just, like, just floating over there and just... Like Iron Man. Yeah. <laughs> but with a water jetpack. Yeah, pretty nice. much. Um, by the way, before I forget, in case we don't have a chance to bring it up again, Breaking the Halo... Now that that's been firmly established and now that I totally understand what that means. Uh, one of the most badass phrases ever. It sounds like a really good metal band. <laughs> or like every time I would read Breaking the Halo or Breaks the Halo, I, like Danger Zone would start playing in my head. <laughs> I love it. I just love that phrase. Sorry. Um, so anyway, we've got a wall and we've got the drafters. He doesn't quite finish the wall. He doesn't right? finish the gate. The, the gate. gate. It's the yeah. last piece, and he doesn't finish it. He doesn't it. finish the gate. And that kind of dooms the city. Yep. So uh, so the city does fall. Um, Garadul's army, or should we say Lord Omnichrome's army, storms the city. He sends Omnichrome in, or sorry, Omnichrome sends in Garadul and says, you know, hey, the city is yours. Go take it. But he, So he gets too far out ahead of his forces, and now you have Kip green goleming and destroying everything in his path like a giant, uh, angry Teletubby. And <laughs> he catches up to him, pops his head like a pimple. Um, and the town, meanwhile, is being evacuated. Everybody's getting on ships and heading out. And that's that's the end of the book? Kind of. Live, uh, live. Oh, well, we... We do have to talk about, and this is why I, this is what I kind of wanted to say for later. We do learn about the freeing before the battle starts. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a nice moment with Gavin's mother, who we met earlier in the book. Uh, what else? What were you thinking of? Well, at the end there, an assassin tries to kill Gavin, stabs him with a knife. Right. Um, or fails. The, or does he? And then he, the assassin and Kip go overboard because Kip basically yeah. stops him before he's able to like fully plunge the knife in or whatever. Yeah. And the assassin swims off. Like in shark infested waters, he swims <laughs> off. He he he's swimming back toward Garadul's army, right? Right. Back toward shore. Right. Um, and they say we don't we don't know what happened to him. And again, the rules of all fiction dictate that no brain matter. He's coming back. Right. Did you guys notice anything about... One of the Black Knights even makes a comment about that. He's like, unless I see their body... Uh, I assume they're still alive. Yeah. Um, Did you guys notice anything about... um, Well, the 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 knife knife was the white Luxon dagger, right? Yes. Did Did you notice anything about it after it had been used? No. Okay. Okay. I don't know. <laughs> but now I'm going back and reading chapter 93, maybe. I don't remember if they may if it's made a big deal or not, but okay, it you'll you should be seeing it in. It, they definitely talk about it in book two, but I don't know if it's mentioned in book a lot one. A lot of questions about the dagger, and so I know that um, a lot of people has, have asked for uh, predictions, which we'll get to later in the episode. But I do have a list of questions okay. that I have, so these aren't predictions so much, but. With the White Lux and Dagger, that raises a ton of questions, obviously. But here's one question I've got. Here's this magical artifact that shouldn't exist. 
uh, that's impossible, but here it is in living color. Uh, and yeah, you're welcome. And my question is, how did Kip's mother get it? Um, it this seems to be beyond what would be the ability of a, uh, a hazed out um, well, town Kip, drunk. Kip even questions how she even kept it. Right. Yeah. Why did, she had, why she, she didn't could, pawn it didn't pawn somewhere it along the line, like way if she's had however long that she's had so, it. So so I have the same question as Kip, obviously, but this leads me to wonder who gave it to her, what are its properties, why did someone trust her with it? What and and essentially what it boils down to is who is this woman? Because we know her as the 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 town hazer, right? Mm -hmm. The drug addict. But that doesn't mean that she was always that. And it could very well have been that um, the, it, I, I believe that she was raped by Gavin. The according real to her. Gavin. Right, according to her. According she was raped her. by the real Gavin back during the war. And so it could be that that event, um, you know, broke her spirit and, and turned her into a drug addict. Uh, so, you know, something like that. And so maybe before that, she was somebody of great importance. You know, I don't know. Why does she have this freaking dagger? So that's my question. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, here's another question for you, Ryan. Please don't answer this. <laughs> Once a drafter breaks the halo, dun -dun 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 -dun, <laughs> uh, they're known as a white. Okay. But so is the head of the freaking Cromeria. It's spelled differently, though, isn't it? W-H-I-T-E versus W-I-G-H-T. Right. Yeah. So, And we talked about this actually during our, I think it was episode three of our Lord of the Rings series. So mm -hmm. episode four of the entire podcast, if you want to go back and listen. <laughs> you don't, um, but okay. Please don't. <laughs> yeah, please don't. Um, but we talked about what white means or, you know, wheat, mm -hmm. an, old, an old English word for guy person man yeah um anyway and so yeah i know it's spelled differently but still it makes it's me more wonder, like, like almost ghoul now yeah 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 so but it's it can't be an accident that he chose a a homonym mm -hmm. or a homophone it's a homophone sorry sorry everybody it's a homophone for these two things like you know what is a white and what is a white what is a white and what is a wheat uh, i would like to know I think he did it just to questions. screw with audiobook listeners. I'm it took me. I had it. no idea, and yeah. I had to go check something in the book, and I was like, "Oh, <laughs> they're spelled differently." Oh, well, that I don't know if really changed my opinion about anything, right. but yeah, anyway, I wouldn't have known at all. The Wiggets and the white. So I do want to know, you know, what what is the white? What is her position? Is it just as the head of the Cromeria? This is like um, the Omerlin's seven stripes stole where you represent all the colors like it could be as simple as that uh but i am curious about it at this point i like the i like the character of the white I do uh, we don't really we we've met her briefly but i don't think we really yeah, know her yet in in this in this book she's pretty much she sends karis on the mission and then uh, there's a little bit of the chromaria with uh gavin when he brings kit back right but other than that she's not a, in this a ton right okay um anyway so those are my questions dun -dun 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 -dun. All right, let's break Good the question. halo some more. Um, let's. Do you guys have things you want to talk about before we kind of go over and uh, check out some more of the questions from Discord? Let's hop over to Discord. That's fine. Okay, so here is a question that I had independently, but at least two different people asked it in the Discord chat as well. 
why do you think the book is called The Black Prism? I was sitting there waiting for a really clear answer. I got to the end of the book and I was so excited I'd forgotten that this was a question until I kind of closed the book and looked at the title and went, wait a minute. That's never explained. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I think we talked about this very briefly, you know, the idea of a black prism in the first episode. And I'm not sure that I have enough more information to go on to change my answer from before. So Stephanie, do you want to go first on this? Or do you know after having read book two? <laughs> I, I really, I have no idea. Okay. All right. So what, why do you think it this book is called the black prism? I was honestly, I was like, let's, let's have your discussion first. Cause I really, I don't have an opinion <laughs> about it. Well, so what I, I said, don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll rehash what I said last time. So I'll try to keep this short, uh, which is that I, I think that it's probably just the idea oh no 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 it's uh, it could be one of two things either uh there are two prisms gavin and dazen and one of them is good and one of them's evil white hat black hat and you know so you're left to decide which one you think is the black prism right uh on the other hand it could be that the magic system is actually different between the two and the reason that two prisms are able to exist is that they aren't they aren't actually the same thing and one of them is the traditional white prism that the chromaria is used to. And then the other one is a black prism of some sort that's able to manipulate light in a way that is indistinguishable to the outside observer, uh, but is actually a, a different magic system altogether. That's uh, So that's where I think I prefer that it go. And I'm sure it's neither of those, but uh, that those are my guesses. So Ryan's, Ryan is stony-faced on the other side of the room once again. Is that ever actually answered? Yes. Okay. Then I'm going to just leave it at that. He says timidly. I, yeah, I have no idea. Um, if, if that's something that's gnawing at you and you haven't finished the series, you'll be fine. Okay. All right. Well, Fizzy River mentions, I've, I've noticed Weeks has a fondness for marking changes in characters with the changes in characters' names. For example, Azoth becomes Kylar and Durzla's various identities in Night Angel, etc., Thoughts on how this theme relates to the transition of identity from Dazen to Gavin. I think this is a really nice hmm. and very shrewd point. So well done, Fizzy River. Uh, I, and I, I, so I don't know if this is a uh, man or woman. So they, I don't know. He, he and or she uh, makes a great point here that that Gavin is the good guy and Dazen is the bad guy throughout mm-hmm. the whole story. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, you know, even once we know about the switcheroo with the two, we still refer to the guy that we know to be a decent, upstanding human being as Gavin, mm-hmm. because Gavin is good. Well, they even they even talk to them about themselves that way, which I think is right. easier to to stay on that train of thought, because even when they're talking together, Dazen, who is in the prison calls himself Dazen, even though he knows he's Gavin. And Gavin always talks about himself as Gavin. So, but I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, I, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but that's exactly the thought I had of that we're now associating good guy with the name Gavin, not the person, the name. It's almost more, almost more of a title now where it's the good guy gets to be Gavin, the bad guy gets to be Dazen. I like that. Yeah. But I have to admit, so he does... This happens again in um Don't you book dare two. say book two. So Kip gets a new name. And that's what I thought of 
is I related that that moment. I never, I guess, in my mind, related Dazen and Gavin to to this point to Night Angel. We but I related this in the next. Yeah, okay, all right. So I let's related put a, Kit more to it than. We'll put a pin in this one then. Okay, that sounds good. Little Red Book. Does Kip earn it or is he riding on his dad's fame? How funny is it that he's told to call Gavin his uncle? And that's a slang term for what unacknowledged bastards use for their dads. Uh, but Gavin is, in fact, his <laughs> uncle. Uh, yes, uh, it is a nice little moment. And, and I did appreciate that while I was reading it. Um, did you know that this is a, a real historical thing that uh, popes and cardinals would have, especially popes, would have illegitimate sons? Uh, you know, it's back in the Middle Ages. I mean, I'm not talking about the 80s or something necessarily. <laughs> um, but uh, popes would have illegitimate children and, and they would call their sons their nephews. And in order to kind of, you know, you, you you treat your family well, right? You give your family advantages and whatnot. And so they would give them positions within the Vatican. And this is where we got the term nepotism. Uh, the Latin nepotem means nephew. And huh. so nepotism actually means nephewism. And that's where this came from was the bastards <laughs> being called nephews. And so right down to, I, I loved uh, having known this previously, it was nice to read Brent uh, talk ab about uh, how everybody would kind of pause before they would say nephew. That's what I thought was funny. Why even bother with the term? Because everyone already knows what it means. They polite. all, uh, yeah. Well, I don't know. And maybe that's just my more modern thought process of right. not having that kind of community. And I don't know what other word to think of, but just saying that he's my son or just acknowledging what he is, like why they had to differentiate between son and bastard or whatever. Well, like. I, I think for a few reasons, first of all, it's believable that in a society like this, politeness would dictate the course of action in a situation like this. Uh, but then also uh, in a narrative way, it sets up uh, a more poignant moment later on when Gavin, after uh, after Kip proves his heroism during the battle and all that, and, and Gavin says, no, that there's no more hiding behind nephews and whatnot. You are my son. Yeah, You are a guile. And so it creates more of a moment there, but you know, so we're, we're setting that moment up. So it also throws a, not that it's a huge issue currently, um, but into, uh, what's the term when you're the heir, um, then you assume succession, succession. Thank you. Of the guile household, um, in the sense of if there are multiple, like there's a legitimate line of guiles and then you have an illegitimate one and you claim him as son, where does he fit in yeah. this? Succession, line of succession, um, which brings me actually makes me think we haven't even touched on the other guile in this story so far. Oh, um, uh, Andros. Andros guile. Yeah. Well, there's not much of him, and so I assume he's going to come up later. But uh, so he's just he, initial. Give me your initial feelings about Andros guile. Right. Oh, he's a dirtbag. He is uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. I can't really use it as a point, point of reference <laughs> so, myself. But. So um, JFK and Ted Kennedy and their other, uh, Robert, and I think there was one more. I think there were four brothers. Anyway, um, they their father was Robert Kennedy. And as he got older, 
and more decrepit. He was consigned to a wheelchair. He couldn't speak. You can actually, if you uh, if you've ever seen the movie Chappaquiddick, then you've seen him uh, played by Bruce Dern uh, very well, I might add. Um, but uh, but you get the idea of this uh, this old man who's in a wheelchair. He can't talk. He's he's uh, but he exerts all this influence despite his uh, disabilities and whatnot. Uh, he exerts all this influence all over the kingdom and he is uh, eternally displeased with everyone around him and cares about nothing except the family legacy, meaning his legacy and what his children can do to bring honor and glory to his name. Um, and th this is extremely Kennedy. I had never thought of the Giles as the Kennedys, but I can see that. Yeah. Um, and so I guess I... I wouldn't be surprised if Brent had the uh, Kennedys <laughs> in mind. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't. But it is very reminiscent of that sort of thing, the rival brothers and the disapproving father. So that's what I think of him as uh, just kind of this creepy guy in a dark room who can't go out anymore. If he sees any more light, he's going to break the halo and die. All that. And his, uh, and his bodyguard. What's the bodyguard's name? Oh, I don't know. The... Grimwoody. Grimwoody. Grim. Grimwoody, come on. <laughs> Brent, come on. You're killing me here. Uh, yeah, what do you think of this guy? Andros Guile. And you don't bring any book two into this. Only book one stuff. I just, I think from the very beginning, he, I just can't stand him. He's so controlling. And you think of the prism and you're like, this is the ultimate power in their society. They're, they're borderline God. And here he is not cowering to his father, but how much control that his own father has over supposedly the most powerful person in the world. And I don't know. I just, he's an interesting character and he grows more interesting. I agree with that. And I assume there's a ton more to come. So uh, I think the name was brought up in the discord server earlier, you know, people saying how much they hate Andros Guile. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, he doesn't seem like a pleasant guy, but we haven't had much reason to hate him yet. So I assume that he's going to become a much more major character going forward in future books. So ready for another one? Mm -hmm. All right. It's our old pal. Joff. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Who says, how creepy is this tradition of the prism murdering people before they become whites? Um, actually, if I had one question, it would be to get your thoughts on religion in the books. Didn't get into that in the first episode. There's a lot to unpack there. I agree. There is a lot to unpack there. So let's talk about that scene. I do have something to say about this. Surprise! <laughs> what? Uh, but Stephanie, go ahead and recap for us what happens with the freeing. What is the freeing? So when they reach a certain point in their lives after they've been drafting for so long, they come to the prism who basically sits and in their confessional and they can tell him whatever they want. And he prays over them and says some really nice things and absolves them of whatever sins that they supposedly have. And then pretty much plunges a knife into them. Yes. And, and then they're taken away and that's it. And they ring a bell and repeat. And then the next person right. comes in. So, yeah, and, and the idea is if they do break that halo, uh, then they go crazy. They're going mm -hmm. to become a white, and, and they don't want that to happen, and so there's this longstanding tradition 
of just kill them when they break the halo or right, right before, before they, they break do the halo. so that we don't have uh, a white a white a white a weak situation <laughs> and on I, our hands. I think it's also kind of as you're talking about their religion that it's important to know that that's them willingly coming to the freeing it's no one saying you 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 and you it's it's your time and they're forced into the freeing they come willingly they know what's going to happen they know yeah. and it's all up to them to decide because i'm sure someone a long time ago would have said andros it's your time like and force him into the freeing if it wasn't a personal choice the prism can force him he can require someone to be to the free. But, but I think that's yeah. that's part of, I guess, that makes it a little bit, I mean, it's still a little harsh when you think about it that this man is going to kill, but it's also they've, they're they willingly coming to it as a as a self-sacrifice, I guess. It's, I mean. There's, there's a line somewhere in the book about how it, they, this is, uh, this is the price they knew they would have to pay and it doesn't change that they signed up for it just because they now feel queasy about it at the end like mm-hmm. the, the bill is due this is what you signed up for I'm actually reminded in a in a very petty way <laughs> neither of you went to BYU I went to BYU if anybody's familiar with BYU there's an honor code this this is uh, the case at a lot of schools especially religious schools Um, but along with any honor code becomes people who hate the honor code. And I'll be the first to say there are things about the BYU honor code that I hated and continue to hate to this day. But at the same time, it's like, that's where I wanted to go to school. And they said, here's a paper that you need to sign that says you're going to abide by this if you want to attend school here. And I said, okay. And I signed the piece of paper and went to school there. You know, so it's kind of a similar thing where it's like, I may not love this but i wanted i wanted what i got and i knew there was a price i would have to pay okay in this case the price was can't grow a beard that's not i mean that's not that big a deal i think it's stupid it's a real thing it's a real thing you guys it's it dates from the 70s you can email me about it later byu idaho doesn't let you wear shorts or sandals oh my gosh don't even get me started on how ridiculous (laughs) anyway moving on there's some good stuff in there too don't worry but yeah there's some ridiculous things but the point is ridiculous as it may be you agreed to it. i agreed to it and so you know you got to be willing to pay the price and so at a now that being said it is there is something to consider that the chromaria much like um the white tower in wheel of time if you are if you start drafting the chromaria is going to come get you and they're going to bring you to the chromaria and they're going to sign you up and you're you know and so it's it's like how much choice do they have in the matter? You, you kind of have to go into hiding or join up with Lord Rainbow if you <laughs> well, want to get I out of this, right? I think that's part of what Lord Rainbow, um, his problem is and how as he views the Cremarian as being corrupt is because in reality, you really don't have a choice. I mean, they're sending slaves there that then in turn have to go back to wherever they came from or whoever owns them and then give their own time as payment. So they're still expected to pay for school as that's what they're doing. They're there to learn and whoever's going to be willing to pay for their schooling, they now owe their life. And they don't, I I don't think they necessarily have a choice in that, that they're saying, Hey, 
we're going to teach you how to do this so you do it right, but then you now have your your life's not your the cost own. Cost of your education is the next eight years, ten years, whatever it is. Because that's how long your life is. Because then you break. <laughs> well, I think this this whole argument, this whole setup is really showcased in two characters. You've got Kip and you've got Liv when they both hear Lord Omnichrome's speech. Mm-hmm. And Kip says, Yeah, this is the that's that's the, the price that's we the price. Up for. We, yeah, that's the deal. But Liv sees the other side and goes, No, that's that's not right. That's not okay. And I love that Brent Weeks leaves it open, like there's no definitive moral code here that no, the good guys believe this and the bad guys believe like and the the other side is the bad guys thing. Like you can side with Lord Omnichrome in this and still be like, okay. Like, it's it's not stupid to sign, side with him. And that's why I think that's why we get Liv joining up on his side is so that we can have a character who we have established is a good person. This is a good guy. Liv is a good guy. This isn't her turning to the dark side because she wants something wrong or bad or anything. This is her changing her philosophy and understanding something different and going, okay, no, I don't think that's right. I don't feel like that's right. And going to the other side I'm, under I'm some manipulative circumstances. Glad you, I'm glad you used the phrase you did because I want to bring up the Jedi because mm-hmm. this, this is very similar in my mind. Um, spoilers for the Star Wars prequels, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um the Jedi suck. They suck. They're <laughs> awful in the prequels, right? The Jedi organization is decrepit and corrupt and all this stuff and lazy and terrible in a lot of ways. Craig's an Empire fan. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to not chase that rabbit. I'm just going to let that one go. We can talk about that another time. Um, but I also want to bring up Chesterton's fence. Okay, so this is all going to come together. I've talked about this on previous episodes, uh, but I know that we have you know, a lot of people joining us new for the Lightbringer stuff, so I want to bring it up again. If you haven't heard of Chesterton's Fence, it's this parable that uh, G.K. Chesterton talked about 100 years ago or so. He says, There exists a certain institution or law. Let us say, for the sake of, of simplicity, a fence or gate erected across a road. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see the use of this. Let us clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, if you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then, when you can come back and tell me you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. And so the the idea here at Chesterton's Fence is just because you don't see the point doesn't mean there isn't one. Right. And so this institution of the freeing or, you know, and so I, I, I kind of compared it to the Jedi. It's, a, you know, the idea of uh, celibacy among the Jedi or, you know, non-attachment. Um, and uh, I don't know what else the Jedi do. You get the idea. Yeah. Training them as kids. You want me to recite the Jedi code for you? I do <laughs> not. I do not. Uh, that's a that's save it for the live videos Okay. Uh, on YouTube. So anyway, but you have these institutions that are in place. Um, and, uh, oh yeah, you're too old to start the training. You know, that that's mm-hmm. the other one I was trying to think of. You have these things in place, these guardrails and to an outside observer, you're like, that is ridiculous. Look at this situation where it demands an exception or look at this handful of situations that demand an exception. We ought to just tear this down. The rule is stupid because we need to, we're just having to make all these exceptions anyway. Right. Um, and so in this case, King Garadul is saying the freeing is immoral and awful. 
we he is the prism is murdering these people who are being forced into slavery and you know held by the Cromeria to these standards and these codes of conduct and whatever and then they're made to die as payment you know like oh thanks for your service dagger plunged to the heart goodbye um and he sees this as uh, a severe perversion as an awful way to treat uh, thank the people who have served the Cromeria uh, and I look at it in more of a Chesterton's fence way kind of saying like okay so we've come across this gate in the road and we don't know we we have an idea of why it's there you know we talked about the idea that uh, people go crazy when they break the halo but is that really all there is to it do we really understand everything about this concept of the freeing and it you know so once we learn more about it do will we then come to understand that, oh there there is a good reason there it has solidified this uh, this practice this institution of the freeing has solidified into a dogma which by the way is good dogma is good let me go on a rant on that sometime uh but it can be detrimental if we don't understand our dogma right and so i i totally see where lord omnichrome is coming from but if i were standing next to him i'd be like well what more can you tell me about it how did it start why did it start uh you know that sort of thing and and then maybe we can talk about it being immoral and getting rid of it yep i think that and that's one of the reasons why i think brent weeks does a good job with the freeing in the sense that anything less than murder makes this a non point this isn't an issue anymore but like because if it was just like hey you come into the the prism and you confess your sins or whatever and then you can never draft again then it's you like, get sent on a boat and they take you far, far away. <laughs> Anything less than murder. And you're like, yeah, but it's not that big of a deal. But putting that twist on that it. That finality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, practically speaking, we know that uh, drafting is addictive, right? Yeah. And, and that's why Andros Guile lives in a dark room. Because he knows that he will break the halo. Because once he sees light... He's going to need to draft it, and he won't be able to help himself. Right? Am I interpreting his dark room correctly? Enough. Uh, something like correctly that. enough. Yeah. I don't know if it's necessarily the drafting that's the addictive part, but I think it's the emotions that feed into the color they are drafting that that take them over. I mean, Kip talks about when he's he's green and he feels invincible, and they're wild, and that's that's part of the personality of green. Um, it's like when he's going through um, the thrashing and he's meeting the the gods and they all have their vices, but they also have their their counterbalance to those of of what kind of personality traits these colors entail. Mm -hmm. All right. Which I really, to get kind of back to Jafu's question, wanted to talk about religion here. I think we've kind of focused on the the break in religion here, or the break in belief system, which has caused our two factions here. Right. Um, but at the core, the religion in this, I, I actually really like the religion um, as we understand it here. Uh, we have their god, Orhalem, who is the, like, this is the provider of light, the sun, right. basically here, and his providing that is what breaks into all of the sub-abilities, which is very common in religion that uh, people are granted 
the ability to do something with God's power. Right, right. right. That's why you have the different tribes of Israel and the priests for each and that sort of thing. Right. So you have that sort of option. So uh, I I love that in this book, the, the way that the world functions, it functions on this religion. I wouldn't call it, a, I don't know if I would call it a theocracy or not, because it's not really like... Uh, I think I would. They Okay. I, I'm not going to so make far. it hard. So far. But... Um, because they worship Borholan, but it doesn't seem to be like a fanatical worship. I, I haven't seen a whole lot of fanaticism outside of... I, the freeing seems pretty fanatical. You know, not fanatic. We, we tend to have this connotation with the word fanatic that they're kind of frothing. There's, you know, foaming at the mouth and, and mm -hmm. you know, they're... they're uh, what's the name from Elantris? Uh, Diloph from Elantris. Like, he's a fanatic, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, fanaticism in this case could just take the form of somebody believing so thoroughly and you know so intensely that they are willing to die for the sake of the religion that tells them this is what you must do at this point in your life okay so here's my question and i do feel like i interrupted you so no I'm no sorry about this. go ahead i really hope this fits in with this book um about iron fist because that's how iron fist feels towards the prism that he is he is his guard and he is bound and he is willing to give his life right. to protect this man because of his calling not because of who gavin is or anything gavin has done it is because he is the prism and because of his religious beliefs he is willing to give his life protecting the prism yeah and i think like i don't know if that's any different than what the freeing is other than the fact that he knows I mean, I'm sure in the end he feels like, yes, I'm eventually going to die, but it's not as imminent, I guess. That actually kind of got to the point I was I was going towards. We have I, I don't feel like we've seen a lot of individual fanaticism. I'm still going to stick with that term, even though <laughs> there. Sure, no, um, I, I think it's an okay term. We just have to be careful of the connotation. But we get to follow different types of religious journeys and belief setups in here because you have atheism set up in here in Gavin. Uh, Gavin, he basically says, I don't believe anymore. Um, and there are other characters who will fall in that. You have those who are extremely devout, like Iron Fist, who the fact, uh, Orhalem's promises, uh, like his devotion is a huge part. And if something like, if Orhalem says, this is how it's supposed to be, this is how it's supposed to be. And he does that through the prism or whatever. Um, then you've got Kip who's kind of, he doesn't know what I, the hell is going on. I believe it enough. Like I'm. Well, he wasn't enough. raised with it though either. He was raised mm -hmm. in. He wasn't even in their. Their what are it starts with an S. Whatever their world. The satrapy. Yeah, but he wasn't raised a part of that religion, so he doesn't understand all the nuances. And then he gets thrown into the Cremaria where he's. It's surrounded by him. It surrounds him, and he has Penetrates no him, idea what's going on. So. Um. So I just think it's interesting that following each individual character and that in the end, so many of them don't really even believe in the religion. Like everyone's actually fighting for the same thing, the downfall of the Cremaria in the end. Like that's what Gavin's whole point was. That's why he became Gavin in the first place. So he could like infiltrate on the inside or whatever. And then and make changes to the Cremaria. Um, Lord Omnichrome, that's his whole point is that they're all fighting for the same thing, the downfall of this religion, religious entity, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, 
uh, the phrasing, I think, uh, to me, that phrasing doesn't ring entirely true in the sense that they're not, like, Gavin's not really trying to cause the downfall or the destruction. He wants to alter its state versus Omnicrome wants it down. He wants it torn apart. Yeah, he he's a to, revolutionary Yeah, so, versus a reformer. Yeah, that's the difference. But I do agree, like, that the whole point of here is we have two people who both want to change something. It's just to the what extremes they want to change it. Right. And we still don't know what Gavin's, all of Gavin's five purposes are. One of them may be reforming the Chromaria, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, okay, well, we better start wrapping it up. Uh, we are coming up on our hour mark very soon here. So we got to do predictions. Stephanie, doggone it, you're so far ahead. I don't think you count anymore for predictions. Well, haven't you finished the whole series, Ryan? I don't Ryan doesn't get to do them either. I was like... I'm the only one who gets to do predictions because I'm the only one with the self-control to record well, before reading we can put out put out something up and i i can tell you whether or not she can make a prediction off of it based <laughs> okay. on where she's at uh so uh little red book asks predictions on kip's dagger where did it come from what's its purpose uh we talked about the dagger already a little bit it, for me it raises questions about the mother and where she comes from if i were to make a prediction about where the dagger came from honestly my prediction is we don't know yet. We haven't met the character who gave the dagger to her. That's my prediction is that there's there's a lot more to uncover <laughs> before we get to uh, that, even that, the correct question, let alone an it's answer. like before you can actually predict anything. Um, I'm in the same spot. I really, they, they've, they've talked, you find out more about, or the, the knife appears more, but you don't really find out anything more about it. And it's a little frustrating at times because it is obviously so important because Andros knows about it um, because he's been looking for it and why he wants it. Is he planning on killing his own son? What does, what does his opinion of it, like why does he want it so bad? Okay, so there you go, White Dagger. I have another prediction, and the, the question here is, why does Gavin lose blue? So at the end of the book, that's the last thing we find out is that Gavin has lost the ability to see or draft blue. This is a big, uh, this is what Joe Biden would call a big deal, right? <laughs> so why has he lost the ability to lose, to use blue? Well, I think it's very, very simple and very, very obvious in a way. I don't know the actual specifics or the mechanics, but it has something to do with when Dazen breaks out of the blue prison cell. And so this happens in the book, at least it, it, he makes it appear to be a simultaneous event that when Dazen breaks out of the blue cell, Gavin loses his blue abilities, okay? So here's my prediction. I'm, I'm going hog wild on this, ladies and gentlemen. The blue prison, much like you know many other things that Gavin has claimed, he lied. He did not create the blue prism or the blue prison. These rooms existed before he found them. Uh, this is it's under the Chromaria, right? And so the Chromaria was not put there by accident. It was built on top of the source of the prism's powers. So it's the source of the, it has to be just the prism because it didn't break all the blues, right? When the when he broke out of prison, it didn't break all the blue drafters. It's just the prism's ability, right? So this is somehow tied to uh, the prism himself and his ability to draft blue. And so, you know, that's that's where I'm going. So it's not that he built the rooms, but maybe he created the mechanisms by which 
he was able to you know lift them and and shift them and all that stuff that he does to trick days and you know he created the tunnels between them and all that sort of thing uh, but he did not create the prison rooms themselves flag plant <laughs> there you go what do you think stephanie okay i'm gonna go off of a conversation ryan and i had right after i finished the first book um is that his source of blue power went into the knife that he was cut by the knife and that is what it drew out his blue power and ah. that is why he no longer can draft blue i like this that's that is what i thought because that's what i was I, that was one of my first questions after i finished the book i went I, to Ryan and i was like what happened i want to know he was stabbed because he was healed but it was at that moment that he no longer could draft blue that he lost blue was after the knife and that's what I think. I think it was absorbed by the knife. Nice. I like that. Because I, I'm really confused and I haven't gone back to double check this. And so maybe you guys can tell me. I thought that when Kip tackled, you know, whatever his name is, the guy, that, the assassin kid, when he tackled him, I thought the narrative said that it was right after the knife plunged into Gavin's back. Mm-hmm. So he did get hit with the dagger yeah because he talks mm -hmm. about his shirt is ripped right but they were surprised that there's, there's no wound there's no wound on his back so the white luxon dagger it doesn't cause physical harm okay so you're probably you're probably more correct than i am but i think my theory <laughs> is a lot of fun anyway so i don't care and ryan can even say yes that is the conversation we had right yep. there's i'm not pulling anything that was her prediction right out of the book okay all right well you're probably smarter than me what else is new <laughs> so uh let's should we call it there i feel like we covered the second half of book one ryan any parting thoughts i'm just really really excited to move into the giant world that we're entering like i'm really excited about this yeah so i i will say i mentioned earlier that we talked about the structure of the book or the structure of the series and how it's not discrete books you know it really by the time we get to the end of this we realize that it is a giant narrative that we're going to have to work through and in another series i could i'm looking at a few on the shelf where i could name where this would be the case if that had been the case with those other authors then i would have said ah it's too much mm -hmm. i just can't ugh. That's too much to take. I, I can't invest in five books just to learn the end of this. But he's done so well with book one that I'm 100% in. And I, you know, I will have no problem. Sometimes I have to force myself to read a book for the podcast. That is not going to be the case <laughs> going forward as far as I'm concerned with Lightbringer. I'm going to also offer up a little bit of, I'm going to call this supplemental advice. Okay. Uh, because you don't have to do this. But it will give you some insight into Brent Weeks' writing. If you're not familiar with the game Magic the Gathering, you should just lightly familiarize yourself with it. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Dang it. Yeah, I knew that was a hole in my nerdery. <laughs> uh. I've got a couple decks. I can teach you. Okay. All right. Well, coming up on hmm. the YouTube live stream, <laughs> Craig we'll learns how to play Magic the Gathering. Um, and you know a bunch of people listening were uh, all just their ears perked right up. What? <laughs> oh, that yeah. sounds awesome. Don't worry. 
I'm a novice at it too, so it'll be the blind leading the blind in terms of teaching <laughs> Excellent. You're gonna watch, we'll watch a match and be like, no, no, that's not how that works. I'll be like, I don't care, I'm sorry. Yeah. This is my understanding of the game. Okay, so let's call it there, unless Stephanie, you have anything else to, to add? Um, I think the only thing, like just kind of go off what you were saying is I am loving this series. This is- You said it was hard for you at the very beginning, right? At the very beginning, it's, it starts out slow, but I think a lot of books, especially when there is- long story as this one is there's a lot to to explain and to build up and once i got into it once you get to the cremaria ryan kept saying get to the cremaria get to the once i was there i have plowed through these books i only started book one last week i read book two in two days i am excited to get to book three i i am loving this series so follow along read the books that's my recommendation. I mean, and if you haven't read book one, then you have no business having <laughs> listened to these two episodes. So, all right. Thanks, everybody. And don't forget that, uh, you know, there are a lot of Lightbringer fans out there who have not heard of the Legendarium. So if you enjoy what we do, uh, please share this with those people as well. So uh, we appreciate when you do that. Thanks for listening to this one. We will be back uh, in a matter of days or weeks or something with book two again we're doing two episodes per book leading up to the blinding white what what's no, it the burning white burning white thank you blinding thank you. knife blinding knife burning white yeah okay so when we get there i do want to warn people uh we will not we will not be on book five we won't release those episodes in time for that release that's not the plan we may um I think we'll do something similar to what we did with Oathbringer, where Ryan and I uh, may have a chance to uh, to read enough beforehand that we can create a, a spoiler-free review to release that day or or within a decent time frame. Um, and if we don't, you can guarantee that the day it comes out, that's pretty much what I'm going to be doing. It's just yeah, exactly. <laughs> that book. Um, and what what was I going to say? Oh yeah. So when book when this this style of discussion of book five, the spoilerific discussion of book five comes out, it'll be probably a few weeks after the book has been released. So you will have had time to read it and absorb it and read it again and then absorb it again and then listen to us talk about it. Uh, so fear not, we will be getting to it, even if it's not right on uh, release day. What we will be releasing on release day is right now we have a plan to bring Brent Weeks on the podcast and have an author's shelf discussion with him. Uh, so I've let some of our listeners know that already, but if you didn't know that, you should get excited for it. He is coming on, as if you're not familiar with author's shelf, we ask uh, a well-known author to pull a book off of their shelf and suggest something for us to read and discuss together. Uh, when we talked to Brent at JordanCon this year, I asked him what book he would pull off of his shelf if he were doing it, and he said The Odyssey has had a big impact on him and his writing throughout his life. And so I said, we've got to do it. That sounds awesome. So we will, that is the plan right now, you know, subject to change, but the plan right now is to chat with Brent Weeks about The Odyssey, and we will release mm -hmm. that discussion on or very near the Burning White release date. So, Ryan, you look like you're looking forward to that. I'm so excited. The Odyssey is one of my absolute favorite of the Greek uh, stories. stories. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, we will do that. Thanks, everybody, again, for listening, and thanks for sharing and liking and joining the community and the conversation. 
and uh, make sure you find us on Patreon if you enjoy what we do and we will see you next time. I'm recording now. I cannot <laughs> believe I missed that. <sighs> well, what are you thinking, Stephanie? I'm just trying to remember where in the book we are. Uh, this is right after the assassination attempt, and so they're just about to head out to Garriston, right? This one, book one ends with Gavin realizing that he's lost the color blue. Mm -hmm. Oh, man. Theories. We ready? <laughs>